I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 78 of the Weave Podcast. Are you interested in sharing some words of wisdom with our audience? Do you want to write an email letter that can be shared with our listeners? Are you interested in sharing an audio clip to be added to one of these episodes? If so, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email at lashawn at gistyarn.com. That's L-A-C-H-A-U-N at G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com. Or reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Aviva Lee, an experienced natural dyer and weaver of contemporary woven and stitched textiles, living in Alsham, a Chittislow town in Norfolk, England. Hello, Aviva, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, LaShawn. How are you doing? Wonderful. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us how you found your way into the world of natural textiles? Certainly. Um, My name is Aviva Lee. Um, I live and work in Norfolk in England. Um, I I, I grew up in South Africa and my background was in fashion. Um, I did an apprenticeship from school and worked um, in sort of fast fashion and um, did that for about 25 years and then went traveling and did various other things. And then in sort of later years, I decided um, I wanted to go to university and study um, because I'd never had that opportunity in South Africa and um, decided I was going to go and study art. And I went and did a foundation course. And on that course was introduced to indigo dyeing and natural dyes. And that was it. I was smitten and I decided then I would wanted to go and study textiles and how textiles are actually made rather than using other people's textiles to design fashion as I've done in the past. Um, so I went to university and did a degree um, here in Norwich and really got interested in natural dyeing and was introduced to various dye masters that came to visit the university. Um, I was also very fortunate to go to France to a big symposium in 2011 and um, it's just such a huge world and I'm just completely fascinated by it and every day is like a new learning journey for me. Wow, that's super interesting. I don't think we've ever had anyone on the podcast who was a natural dyer in England. Can you talk about some of the dyes that you have access to in your area? Sure. Um, well, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I studied in Norwich, which is um, a city that was once very, very famous. Um, it was the second richest city after London for textiles and wool in particular. And um, while I was studying at university, I became very interested in the, the textile heritage of the city and the surrounding area. Um, and I studied a lot of the 18th century textiles for which Norwich was really famous. Really incredibly bright, vibrant colours from dyes like madder and woad and weld. Um, and so that was my kind of uh, fascination and what I concentrate my work on. So I, I do those three, the three primaries, the, the red from madder, the yellow from weld and the blue from woad, which is, of course, the European um, 
in sort of version of indigo. Um, and then I'm also really interested in how we can make really vibrant, long lasting colors using traditional recipes, but using more um, sustainable contemporary practices to get to get those colors. Interesting. And what types of recipes have you collected over the years? Oh, um, well, I've, I've got quite a few of the old um, recipe books from the, the sort of dye masters from the 18th century. But very often I have to change um, some of the ingredients because they used to use toxic things like tin and chrome in their work, which obviously I don't use in mine. But um, even just reading about the processes that they went through to get the different colours are, are really, really interesting. Um, you know, describing how they set up a woad vat and how it takes days and days of stoking the fire and you know, all the all sort of very romantic um, illusion of, of, you know, stirring a big pot over a fire. Nowadays, obviously, <laughs> I use an induction hob, which is a lot more easier to get. Um, but also, recently, we've had a lot of sunshine. So I've been using, um, doing a bit of solar dyeing and putting pots out just in the sun and the heat from the sun has been amazing, which is really rare in England, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you you mentioned that you grow or that you use woad, which is the um, which is a cold hardy a cold hardy plant of indigo, and you also mentioned weld, I believe. That's correct. Yes. Can you talk about weld? Sure. It's um well, it's a yellow dye. It's a very ancient, historic yellow dye, um, and it was used right up until sort of the middle of the nineteenth century when they discovered. Uh, quercitrin which comes from the black oak um, mm. and that was actually developed um, and the, the use was they were experimented with that yellow dye here in Norwich there was a guy called Edward Bancroft who was involved in the development of that so that's also almost got a connection with with our country and our you know my city but um, the well dyes have been used universally for years and years and years, centuries. Um, and here in Norfolk, it grows all over the place. And I've become a bit of a weld spotter. So when I drive around in my car, I'm always looking on the side of the road to see where I can find it. And I've always mm. got um, secateurs in the boots so I can go and harvest a bit as I'm going around. Because it's basically just a weed that grows all over the place. Wow. And it produces it the color yellow? quite astonishing um how bright the yellow can be it's really really vibrant and um whenever i post pictures on my instagram it's it's like a big pot full of sunshine um and interestingly enough the football team here in norwich um is uh they call the canaries because um mm. when the, the settlers came over to do the weaving they brought their canaries with them from france and the lowlands and so our football jerseys are all this incredibly bright yellow color as well so for me it's also a color of norfolk even though it's um you know it's not um it's it's grown here and it's um it's just for me just as famous as the meadow and the and the world that the world is as well that's so interesting so it's like canary yellow it is the brightest, brightest sunshine. And I always say it's like dying with sunshine. So when you have a cloudy day, you put a pot of that on and it cheers you up instantly. You also get fantastic <laughs> greens from it if you over dye it with the woad. So um, mm. you've probably, you know, obviously heard of the legendary Robin Hood and that, the, you know, the tale goes that his clothes were called so-called Lincoln Green. Now that's another city that's um, on the east of our country. And the Lincoln Green was basically made up of the bright yellow canary um, from the world. And, of course, the woad over-dyeing it to get this really, really vibrant green colour. 
Wow, that's so interesting. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so can you talk more about Aviva Lee and where the name comes from or how you started and what motivated you to start your business? Okay, so um, Aviva Lee is actually my name. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, when I left university, I was when I was at university, I was really interested in the slow movement Um you know, originated with food and it's kind of infiltrated through into life in general. And, um, and the, you know, there's now a sort of a concept of slow textiles. And um, I set up a little company when I left university, which was in about 2012, called Slow Stuff. Um, stuff is a very ancient word for cloth. And I like the idea of it being about slow processes, slow, um, uh, you know, the whole ethos, um, which boils down to being conscious of the provenance of the materials that you're using. So where does it come from? How is it produced? Who's produced it? Those sort of ideas. Um, also promoting heritage skills, um, you know, traditional skills, but to make contemporary work. Um, and just honouring um, the history and the, and the skills that go into making the materials that I use. But I think I was maybe a little bit ahead of my time because people hadn't really got the whole slow idea then. And I was always being asked, you know, why is it slow? Is it because you do everything slowly? Because being a dyer and a weaver, um, you know, those are all slow processes. But so mm. I kind of abandoned the name slow stuff and just stuck with my with my own name. Um, and, and that's what it's sort of been working under for the last eight years or so. Interesting. And you also mentioned previously that you worked in fashion and that you sort of worked in fast fashion. Can you yeah. kind of talk about some of the things that you experienced working in that industry and how that may have informed your process now? Um, yeah, I think um, when I was I was working in in um fast fashion I was liaising between a big department stores big um, chain stores um, it wasn't as hectic as it is now I mean there was sort of four to six ranges a year so it wasn't like the fast fashion that we know now I'm talking about this was um, maybe 25 30 years ago but um, the one thing that I was conscious of was the skills of the people who were making these clothes. Um, I worked, I, I designed menswear for a while and I worked with a lot of incredibly skilled tailors um, and, you know, really knowledgeable people. Um, but also uh, we, the company, one of the companies I worked for used to produce um, uniforms for schools. And in South Africa, all the schools have the, the dresses that the, the girls wear. They're all different prints and different fabrics. And every few years, the schools would change the design of the school dresses and then we ended up in the factory with like bales and bales of really brightly colored printed cottons and nobody was doing anything with them and I remember going scavenging around in the storeroom one day and just coming up with this label called salvage and I designed a whole kind of jeanswear range based on all these fabrics that nobody wanted um, wow. and we did these really cool shirts which we over dyed um, unfortunately not with natural dyes in those days but we managed I just hate the idea of waste and that was a really it's something I, I still have in my practice you know the zero waste ethos of using up everything and honoring the fabrics and and the fact that they are resources that need to be used and need to be respected how do you source the materials that you're using now so, um, well, in my practice, um, I work as a, as a dyer and I produce a, a collection of yarns called Colors of Norfolk, 
Um, and these are all based, um, they're sort of what you'd call, I guess, indie dyed yarns or, you know, you know in artisan yarns. Um, and I only work with British wool. So um, I've managed to source uh, beautiful blue faced Leicester yarns, which can be used uh, for knitting or crochet, or actually some of them I use in my own weaving. Uh, the weaving I do now tends to be kind of limited, more artistic sort of pieces. I don't, I'm not a really a production weaver. Um, but it's really important to me to know, again, the provenance of where the wool comes from. And um, it's spun up in Yorkshire because they do um, the spinning best and they produce a really good quality. And because it's a lot of it's worsted spun, it's got a lovely sheen to it and it takes the colour really nicely. Um, so, yeah, I basically... Uh, try and work with materials that I know you know where they come from and, and then in terms of my dyes again I'm, I try and make informed uh, choices about where I'm sourcing my materials from um, if I'm using something like logwood or indigo I want to know that it's coming from a sustainable source and that um, you know there are people out there in the world who are producing um, logwood and things like that but obviously you know in a sustainable uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for in a sustainable uh, business where they're replanting trees as you know and, and being aware of what they're doing so it, and um you know mentioning the waste as well it's really important to me uh not to waste materials i everything i use in my practice is um non-toxic so anything that's left over when i have a little sink i have a sort of a setup outside in my garden that i work in and if um, any of the water that i use for rinsing goes into a big bucket or sort of tank thing and I use that to water the, the garden so I'm, I know I'm not putting anything toxic into the plot onto the plants and I, I try not to waste resources as much as possible mm, interesting and do you grow or have farm experience in using the materials that you use presently or have you in the past um, at at the moment, I don't. I grow quite small quantities, almost like specimen plants, um, so that if, you know if people come around and they want to see what the plants look like, it's quite interesting to have specimens of them. But um, in the past, I have worked um, very closely with um, a guy who developed um, and grew woad in Norfolk. Um, he's retired now, so he's not doing it any longer. But for a few years, I worked with him, and we did um, commission dyeing. Um, he actually was a farmer, so he used to. I used to stand on the tractor and go around um, drilling the seeds, and we did everything from you know sowing the seeds to processing the pigment, um, dyeing the garments. Um, we were doing a bit of tie dye. We it was really amazing experience but unfortunately I didn't have the resources when he wanted to retire to take over the business but yeah it was a very a very invaluable experience for me yeah it sounds awesome and it is interesting that you mentioned like you know having the resources in order to continue on the business we've had quite a few people on the podcast who've kind of talked about the shifts and waves that the textile industry globally has kind of gone through. And, you know, I myself am sort of in that phase where I'm trying to figure out how to scale. Can you talk about yeah. um, how you have been able to sustain your business? Um, not just, you know, sustainability in the sense of like environmental, but what has it sort of been like 
um, as far as finding a surrounding community in your area and linking up with other people? Sure. Um, so socially, um, well, I, I guess another role which I have as part of what I do is I teach a lot of workshops. Um, so I'm very uh, aware of the benefits of making and craft um, for well-being. And for years I taught a kind of um, Saori philosophy type weaving, like freestyle weaving, but on small folded, fold up uh, rigid heddle looms. Um, and I, it was all about promoting um, the, the inner creativity of each individual person. So when they were weaving, they weren't making like, they didn't have a, an end product in mind or they didn't have to follow a complicated pattern. It was really about um, tactile sensibility, about exploring materials, about discovering this little inner voice that was there that needed to come out. So that was, that's been a really, really important um, and beautiful part of my work. I don't do that so much anymore. Um, I tend to teach m more on the dyeing side, the natural dye, um, you know, promoting the, the idea of using natural colour rather than chemical dyes. Um, but I've also been involved in some community projects um, because I stitch and I make quilts as well um, using naturally dyed fa uh, fabrics and again also using um, zero waste upcycled stuff. So I've done a few community projects where um, we've uh, started off like for example one of them I did was all about Norfolk city coast and countryside. Um, and we started off in a school where we took um, cotton and dyed it with woad that had been grown in Norfolk. Um, and then I got the kids to kind of consider um, what represented the city or the coast or the countryside for them of Norfolk. And they all sort of drew little pictures, which we then turned into appliques using scrap fabrics and appliqued them onto these woad squares. Um, and that was about a two week project in the school. And then we took the whole project into we have a place here in Norwich called the Forum which is our kind of library community place where everybody gathers and we have exhibitions and things like that. And they have a, a an annual event, which is like a maker's month. And we took the whole workshop into the middle of this forum and just invited the, the community, the public to come and sit down and work with the girls and just, um, you know, contribute to this quilt. And it ended up being this amazing quilt that people from the age of 8 to 80 had created and it was all about the place they lived and it had some of the local material that had been you know had grown in Norfolk and obviously a lot of the, the people had never heard of woad they didn't know what that was so that kind of brought lots of conversations about um, you know natural dye plants and um, amazing how many memories came up because we used to be a big textile city we had a lot of clothing factories and that sort of thing and that's all gone now but um, people, you know, as soon as they started stitching, it brought back memories for them, for them. So that was a really nice element to it as well. So I enjoyed doing those. I've done quite a few of those sort of community projects. And I think it's important to kind of give back something um, and share your skills with all different sorts of people and get them all talking to each other, you know. <laughs> so um, the other, the other, I guess you were asking me about some of the, cha the challenges. Um, I think um, the internet for me is a big challenge. I think um, when I started my practice, I used to blog a little bit and I used to write articles for um, Hand Eye magazine and just share things that were going on inside my head and my ethos. 
I think the internet and Instagram in particular, the world's become such a noisy place. There's so many people mm. babbling on about what they're doing. And I've kind of almost <laughs> ta- taken a decision to kind of, I'm just going to sit here quietly and do what I do and do it in my own small way because I just think everybody's shouting so much. Um, and I find that quite stressful sometimes and it's so competitive mm. and it's not really mm-hmm. how I am. So I've kind of taken a step back from that a little bit, I think. Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm a tiny voice in a babbling world. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I completely understand and identify with all of that. Um, the internet is it is definitely very noisy and there is, you know, sort of like a resurgence or interest in things that are, you know, natural textiles and, and natural farming. And there definitely is a competitiveness um, that I've noticed and, you know, given the nature of, you know, what we do as naturally inclined artists and makers and designers and weavers, um, it's important that we don't lose sight of, of why we're here. And that is to make things that are good for the environment and that are good for people. Yeah. I think also there's just too much stuff out in the world at the moment. <laughs> I think um, people start need to start thinking about what do they actually need. And, and if I'm making something, I like to think that someone's going to buy it because they either want to keep it and cherish it and use it year after year after year. And for example, I make sort of like woven shawls or wraps, you know, like in you know wool or silk or something. So I want that thing to be gifted and maybe it becomes an heirloom or... Um, I just don't want to mass produce stuff. Um, I'm just no interest in that whatsoever. So, and also I like telling stories about the things I make and like, where did that fabric come from? Or, um, you know, that's quite, people like to have a little story attached to what they're buying as well. And that adds value to the thing, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. And your, your shawls and your natural dyeing and your fabrications are so beautiful. Can you talk Thank about you. your aesthetic? Okay. Um, well, the style of about the color, first of all, because color is like the language that I like to speak. <laughs> and, um, and then it's about the materials and the, and the tactility of the materials and um, I'm not a traditional weaver in that I work with very complex weave structures. I do have an H-shaft loom, um, mm. but I tend to work with simple weave structures and let the fabric or the material and the color talk. Um, and my palette is really influenced about, by where I live. So um, I, I'm in Norfolk, which is renowned for having this huge blue sky when it's blue. We also have an amazingly big coastline and there's just as a, a sort of quality to the light here and the, the textures around us. So we have a lot of the beaches have pebbles, um, the houses, the buildings have uh, terracotta tiles. There's texture everywhere you look, you can get inspired and that sort of feeds into my work quite a lot. Um, I also, which I haven't mentioned yet, is I do go to Morocco quite a lot and I take mm. groups of people out there. Um, and so that's another thing. That's my kind of Colors of the Sun story that I work with and working with the indigenous dyes um, that I, well, they don't even use them as dyes anymore. They use them as sort of um, medicines or spices. Um, 
I, ha- I create a different kind of world there and that's inspired by what I see when I go there. So it's very much for me, it's about where, are, where am I and what can I see and what can I feel and what can I sense and that's what goes into my work. Wow, that's awesome. And do you have any new projects that you're working on now that you'd like to talk about? Um, yeah, well, it's really interesting because I've kind of, um, through all my study of um, the heritage and the history of Norwich textiles, this this theme that runs through it is about the people that used to make the textiles. And I'm really interested in the whole concept of apprenticeship to uh, apprentice to journeyman to master. And um, mm. I feel like I've kind of completed my apprenticeship, my seven-year apprenticeship, which is what traditionally they would have done. Um, I haven't been indentured to anybody, so I haven't been like forced labor or anything like that. But <laughs> in terms of my own journey, I feel like, yeah, I've kind of, I got this one. I've got the apprenticeship bit. Now I feel like I'm in the journeyman stage. And journey for me is a really exciting word. So it's my own learning journey, but it's also um, I want to travel some more. I want to go and see um, places where people make color, especially indigo. That's my thing, which I absolutely love. Um, and my dream would be to just travel around the world working with indigo masters, but, um, and then to become a master myself of what I do and to, to have that sort of tacit knowledge that's just there and I can share it with people. And, um, I don't think I haven't got to that stage yet, but I, I quite like the idea of working towards that. Um, and to that end, I've sort of cut back on my teaching now so that I can spend more time on my own practice um, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at my bookcase and I've got so many books that I want to like dive into and explore and have time to experiment and say, you know, what if I do this and what if I do that? So I probably need about another 50 years, which I haven't got, I don't think. <laughs> um, I'm sort of going to have a good old go at it. And um, I've given myself a year first as a kind of almost like a sabbatical mm. to um, explore this idea of being a journeyman and I've planned a couple of trips to go and and look at things and I keep going back to Morocco and I take my groups over there and um, each time I go I'm learning new things and I'm discovering new things and I'm meeting new amazing people so yeah I just want to keep going like that for a while see what happens I don't like to plan too far ahead you know (laughs) yeah I mean that sounds so exciting yeah, I think um, it's just, you know, I think sometimes you need to almost go back to be, to, you know, like the beginner's mind thing where you just play a little bit and you explore. And um, the one thing I found about the teaching is it was incredibly time consuming and it takes a lot out of you because you're giving out all this um, knowledge and, and skills to people that your own kind of creative pool gets a bit empty. And I feel like now's the time to restock the pool and um, start enjoying my own learning experience a little bit more. Hmm. And just one question before we, you know, sort of close out. Can you talk about how you are inoculating the woad vets that you're using? Because I've spoken to people who grow Persicaria tinctoria and indigo sucfuticosa which is what i have but i've never spoken with anyone who uses woad so can you talk about how you extract the dye from the woad plant um so 
that well i basically the way i if i'm using fresh leaf which obviously is a i'm not extracting in large quantities at the moment i'm still nurturing my woad vat using the woad which i grew which i got from um the guy who grows the woad here in norfolk um but i keep it um completely pure as pure as i can and don't um, add any you know synthetic or any other kind of indigo to it so it's a, um i have it in um it's kind of a what do you call it like a preserve pan it's a sort of an electric thing that you can set the temperature to exactly the way that you want it it's so it's it's really looked after it's like my little baby <laughs> um, but if I do a fresh woad vat then I basically would just use the leaf and you kind of um, oxidize it and then you know the color settles out and you can use that but I prefer um, to do that with um, when I'm using my indigo I try and work with organic and um, I like working with things like henna or dates and things like that and um, calcium hydroxide. So I, I'm not sure if that's what you mean because I, I haven't heard the term inoculation <laughs> when <laughs> you're referring to a vet. It sounds a bit kind of medical, but yeah. <laughs> I think they're just like your babies. You've got to look after them. Oh, really? Okay. No, I've not come across that expression before. Maybe it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's actually the second time that I've said that and someone was like, inoculation, what do you mean? <laughs> I guess like how you're creating the environment, to, uh, the how you're extracting the dye, how you are feeding the dye, okay. you know, what it needs. Okay, so feed, and, yeah, you know. feeding is, so it, it's just, I think that's what comes with your, your kind of knowledge that you develop. You get to learn how the thing behaves, how it smells how it feels sometimes you can feel it you know with your fingers if it feels soapy or um so and then of course you've got your ph strips and that sort of thing as well but um yeah I, I think it just comes with experience and you just sort of but i do try like the one i've got going at the moment it's got i used henna and we've had this incredibly gorgeous warm weather so it's been almost like being in morocco but being in england um when i'm there <laughs> i tend to use things like dates um, so yeah, and I'm, that's another thing, you know, in this learning journey of mine, I want to try lots more different methods of doing this, that. I've got a big stash of madder, which I've been saving um, to do a madder vat, a, you know, an indigo vat with madder as the um, kind of the fermentation element of it. But, the, you know, this is why I need mm. time to go and experiment and to go and play, which you can't do when you're just like rushing in between classes and things like that. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I'm super interested in seeing how that matter indigo vat turns out. Yeah, me too. I've got this kind of little shed at the back of my garage, which gets a lot of sun and it gets really, really warm in there. It's like a little greenhouse almost. So I've got my mm. smelly vats in there and I'm, the neighbors haven't complained yet, so I should be all right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And where can people go on social media or the internet to follow and support your work or to sign up for one of your workshops? Okay, so um, at the, at the, the website is basically Aviva Lee. So it's A-V-I-V-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com. And um, my Instagram is at Aviva Lee Textiles, one word. Great. So before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone who joins the podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Um, I think um, you need to 
kind of believe that it's never too late to be what you might have been. Um, that's a quote that comes from George Eliot. It's not my words. <laughs> but as I said earlier, um, I, I went to university, you know, in my mature years because I was just really, really interested in learning more. And I think um, you should never stop asking questions. You should never assume that you know it all. You should just keep learning and keep working, striving towards, you know, learning more and, and having more knowledge. And um, also don't forget to play and experiment and try other things as well that might not necessarily be in your kind of um, discipline. So, for example, you know, maybe make some paper or do some drawing or it's amazing when you start working with other materials how ideas can come to you. Um, so just play and be a child sometimes and explore and never stop asking what if. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. You're very welcome and thank you for inviting me. That's a wrap. If you're interested in finding out ways to support Aviva's work, you can find links to her website at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 78. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Margaret Russell, a weaver of almost 40 years about her preservation wraps project, which supports the conservation of watch-listed breeds of British sheep. So stay tuned for that episode next week. And until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!